Have an amazing <laughs> guest today. Uh, uh, Robin, will you please introduce our guest for today? Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. Okay, I feel like I say this every episode, but I am excited for Sada to be here because she's um, also at UIUC, but she's two floors up. She's on the fourth floor in the Spanish department. And the, um, the flub, right? I call it the flub. Half the people I know call it the flub. I don't know. Sada's been there longer than me, so <laughs> I don't know what she calls it. She probably just calls it like prison i don't know so <laughs> um but sara does it all she's fantastic um she what she is born and raised in spain um and then she got her bachelor's in english linguistics and literature and then she spent her last year of undergrad in germany and i'm gonna screw it up because there's an umlaut in here but munster 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 um yeah, <laughs> <laughs> where she met her husband, Alex, who is one of my um, colleagues, whom I greatly adore. Wait, hold um, on. What do you call Alex in the department? This is very important. <laughs> um, <laughs> he has a variety. Every All of us have a variety of nicknames. Um, oh, God. <laughs> but um, we will call him either Grandpa or Papa. Okay. <laughs> I've heard you talk about I've heard you mention Papa before. Like Papa. So and so and Papa. And I was like, who's Papa? Because like he's just older than us and he's been here for he's been teaching, so he's There's been like our, our Oh yeah, no, like he's our guiding light with like teaching and court and like the sage Aww. like the sage like advice that I wouldn't go as far as sage like, but <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> sorry, Papa. This but is your one plug, Papa. Your I plan. adore Papa. He is wonderful, um, and he does some really cool research too. Um, but she met Alex Papa in Germany, and then she dragged him with her to the states, as she puts it in her bio, to teach <laughs> Spanish at the University of Michigan as part of a one-year exchange. Now, eight years later, she's still here in the U.S., but now she's finishing her PhD in Spanish linguistics with a concentration in SLATE, and so SLATE at UIUC stands for Second Language Acquisition and Teacher Education. Mm -hmm. And so her research is so cool, and I've had the pleasure of seeing her present as well at um, different functions, but her research focuses on assessing the effects that different types of language instruction, such as explicit versus implicit, have on second and heritage learners' learning outcomes, and language processing of Spanish mood, so subjunctive versus the indicative, right? Which is something that I, of course, struggle with. Um, I mean, I need, I need your help, Sada. Anyway, um, and so she is particularly interested in the methodology used in the field of instructed language acquisition to assess the learning gains after exposure to different language instructional interventions. And so in her most recent project, because there are so many and they're all brilliant, she's using eye tracking to examine differences in input processing strategies after second and heritage language learners are exposed to explicit language training. Very cool. So excited to talk about this. And in addition to that, she of course has worked in um, multiple interdisciplinary fields using French and English. And then she also, on top of that, does yoga, and she is a cooking fiend. Let me tell you, my office smells great because Alex is heating up something that she has made, and it is, ooh, it's so good. So, 
we could talk about that too, but I Thank think linguistics come first, right? <laughs> yeah, maybe we can, we can, we have another podcast on cooking. And we can, uh, invite you back to discuss that. I guess this is my time to plug my new, I have a new podcast coming out soon. It's called <laughs> Two Forks and a Knife. Oh my God, you're still on this? <laughs> no, no, wait, 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 wait. I like that. Two spoons and a knife. You can actually do something with two forks and a knife, but two spoons and a knife, it's kind of like. Two forks and a knife. Two forks and a knife. No, but it's not two. Sarah, Sarah, it's gonna be two spoons and a knife, okay? No, I want two forks. I want two forks and a knife. I'm a fork person. I don't like spoons. Anyways, you guys stay tuned and we will be right back. Welcome back. Today, we're going to hear all about Sada's research. I'm really, I'm really excited because it sounds like Sada's research really closely aligns with what I do, and so you know how academics are. They're, very, they're mostly just interested in what they do, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so, Sada, do you mind just giving us a brief overview? I know that we heard a bit about it for um, uh, when we were learning about your bio and stuff like that, but can you just tell us a little bit about your dissertation that you're, you're in the, you're in the end game right now with your dissertation, right? Like, I know. I'm just so tired this year, but yes, I'm excited, but I'm just, I'm, I'm emotionally drained and yeah. just mentally done, but yeah, I am. No, I totally don't, let my, don't let my advisor hear this. No, okay. <laughs> no, so just Sarah, can you just tell us a little bit about uh, what your dissertation is about? Sure. So um, since the beginning, of, I have been very interested in explicit language. Um, not acquisition, I should say explicit language instruction, basically. Okay. Yeah. Uh, because it's something that I got a lot in Spain and abroad when I studied in Europe. So I was just super curious um, to see to what extent this is beneficial for language learners and more interestingly for heritage speakers who sometimes are in the same classroom, right? I'm an applied linguist, like I said, right? So I'm, I'm a teacher. I've taught for seven years. I have taught like 11 different classes. So it comes down to the same, right? I'm like, mm -hmm. is my job helping them or not? Because yeah. at the end, everybody comes to a classroom at some point, right? So I'm really interested in examining the role of the instruction in the second language acquisition process and now in the heritage language acquisition process. So basically what I did, I decided to some sort to operationalize this in a way, you know, because uh, at the end of the day, it's all about numbers, unfortunately. So a lot of the research I do is quantitative in nature, mm -hmm. but now I'm trying to use different methodologies and measures to make it more qualitative the same time. So I'm looking at the effects of explicit language instruction. What I mean by that is any type of instruction that has a rule that is given to the learner okay. or that uh, is eliciting some kind of rule from the learner. I focus mostly on the subjunctive because it's hard for everybody. Mm -hmm. For both L2 learners and heritage speakers, so I can sort of like kill two birds with, with one stone when I'm doing research. Yeah. And there's a lot of research out there too on that. So basically what I'm looking at is whether explicit language instruction can change the way second language learners and heritage speakers process the language initially. And they're making those initial form meaning connections. If it has the power to change how they are processing language okay. in a more accurate way, if that makes sense. 
So I guess what are your like ultimate findings? I guess like did they find it to be beneficial to have explicit language or or in, in explicit instruction or uh, for heritage it? speakers is a little bit messy. I'm gonna be honest with you. It's like okay. but, but it is because my baseline is complicated to understand too. You know how sickle language learners are a little bit more like clear cut. You either know it, you don't know it, but you're sort of like uh, yeah. okay. using consistently a rule. Heritage speakers are too diverse. So when I was doing the study, adult learners were more easily, like the results were more easy to read and understand. But with heritage speakers, I see such a wide range mm -hmm. of proficiency and what they understand. So just to give you an example, my dissertation has an in two interpretation task, one production task, and a sentence processing task. Okay. So... I just didn't want to do the typical multiple choice option, fill in the gap thing, but I wanted to kind of supplement that with processing. So I'm using eye tracking yeah. to look up processing. And you see different things in different tasks, which to me, which to me is really interesting. Okay. Because it kind of helps you understand where they're at. So like um, the production is not great initially, but the interpretation is there. Uh -huh. I sort of have some knowledge of it, but it's not solid. So they have and more like a passive knowledge just from exposure. And for yeah, yeah, sort of like that. Yeah, so like they'll be bothered by by it if it's used wrong in a sentence, mm -hmm. even though they're reading a sentence for comprehension. But then in their production is not there consistently, or their interpretation is a little bit off. So like fifty fifty, right? So sometimes they get it right, sometimes they get it wrong. So it looks like they don't have a clear understanding of what it means and the meaning the meaning it conveys. So like what? I'm sorry, just a. Uh, uh to keep asking, asking you, the, I'm preparing you no, for no. your defense. I, we need to, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, no, um, I just keep, my mind is going crazy with all of these possible implications for the L2 classroom, particularly mm -hmm. for the heritage learner. You know, at HLS, we met each other first time, uh, for the first time ever at HLS this year, Hispanic Language yeah. Symposium. And it felt like everybody was overwhelmingly concerned with what it meant to have anxious heritage learners. Mm -hmm. And I, that may not have been something that was directly within the scope of what you were researching, but is that something that you kind of saw come up in any kind of like any oh, yeah. measures or any kind of... Uh... So just to give you a sense of my study, um, I have a control group and I have an experimental group, right? So my experimental group is getting instruction mm -hmm. and then the instructional module is just explicit information with some processing strategies, suggestions for them. And then they do a practice where they're just like um, choosing A or A or B. And then if they, got it, they get it wrong, they get feedback saying, correcto, incorrecto. Heritage speakers will go through the explicit information. And I, I even built like a few questions to make sure they fully understood because you know that like, heritage speakers sometimes are now very likely to understand explicit because it's not what they used to. Mm -hmm. um, so I made sure that that happened in a way. I mean, I try my best to make sure that they fully understood. But then they moved to the practice and then they were getting it wrong and you could see their frustration. Like sometimes I had to stop the study and, and they were like, I don't get it. It's, it's wrong. Like it goes against their intuitions. So I was just, don't worry about it. Um, this is not related to your class. I'm just testing something. Um, the fact that you see that is wrong necessarily mean that is wrong, wrong. It's just according to what we're teaching you today. And I will just have a debriefing session with them after to make sure that they, they understood that this is just a study and it's just in something that is very prescriptive in nature. Mm -hmm. So them getting that correct and correct didn't mean anything really. But yeah, I, I saw that a lot. Very interesting. I mean, you know, when it comes to heritage learners, um, particularly if you're dealing with like Spanish heritage learners in a classroom, 
and they are in an American context, it's so closely related to their identity, particularly if they're like second generation immigrant, third generation immigrant, the further away that you get from that, the original immigrant coming into the United States with the full language and then trying to learn English when they come, you know, and then they moved away from that. And it's just, it goes back into their own culture and it just goes back into all of these different there's so many facets to the heritage learner that it's really difficult to parse all those things out, you know? Yeah, for um, sure. Which yeah. I find fascinating. I mean, kudos to you for, you know, trying to reach out to heritage learners because it's a very, it's a very challenging field, but you I, think, I think it's something too. It's like, I mean, forever that the heritage learner has been seen as like, uh, well, the heritage learner, let's just put them over here. You know what right. I mean? Like, let's just kind of, you know, they'll, they'll sort it out, you know, <laughs> like, and they kind of right. get, they kind of get left out. Um, they kind of get yeah. left out a lot, I feel, you know, and it's interesting to see, yeah. to see and people if, do research with it. There's a lot of research out there right now that is trying to look at whether, so you see, half the time you have, it's not very common that you might have a program only for heritage speakers like UIC does, right? And that I was lucky enough to teach there. So like they have two levels and they're only heritage speakers. So it's like a composition based program. Cool. But here at U of I, we don't. I mean, we just, we have only two online classes for composition for heritage speakers. Yeah. So the rest of the time they're just in our classes and it's really hard to meet their learning needs. Yeah, it is. I've had conversations with um, particularly teachers, uh, foreign language teachers at the secondary education level yeah. that have said that they've expressed that they have a fear of having a heritage speaker in the room. Oh, yeah. For one, they don't they don't know quite what to do with them. Right. They don't know how they don't know how to, to help them learn. And secondly, especially if it's a teacher who's been in the classroom for a long time, maybe doesn't have very much like native speaker contact or Mitch, you know, they don't participate in like a, a standard community of practice and they worry about the heritage speaker who's like, say, uh, an ex like um, I was talking to someone, they were talking about an, an exchange student coming in and this was it was a German teacher and uh, and he was saying he was like oh my god like I've got to I've got to make sure like I've got you know I've got all of my um, genders down for my nouns because I know that this this native speaker is going to call me out on it you know and so it was causing him anxiety uh, right to have to have the student in but it's a really uh, that's a really interesting topic I was wondering if you had faced any kind of like pushback for doing research on explicit explicit grammar instruction because I think just you know the way that I think about it you say explicit you say explicit instruction in a foreign language classroom around someone who's a who's a teacher and a lot of people get you know start getting very upset about that right, <laughs> right. and so I was just wondering like how you know have have you experienced that have uh, how have you dealt with it I think your project awesome of course but uh what do you um yeah what's your experience with that so I guess I should have clarified this has come up in a lot of conferences too so I think the way I'm approaching this I am very used to the hybrid flipped blended format whatever you want to call it uh -huh. Um, so I think what I'm interested in is that particular time the student spends at home working by themselves. Mm -hmm. Those explicit information tutorials they, they watch or like those particular activities where they're just literally doing that explicit portion of the class. I'm interested in those. So when I say explicit in instruction, I don't necessarily mean that it's explicit instruction in the classroom. I'm just interested at what the student mm -hmm. does by himself and at home to what extent that benefits them. So that when they come to the classroom, they can really spend that time communicating and doing more meaningful mm -hmm. tasks per se. So yeah, that, yeah that's, sure. that's my defense. 
<laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. Yes. I mean, I, but yeah, I have gotten so much more. And I let me just say something. I have done this because that's where the literature was at at that point. Mm -hmm. It's like uh, explicit is better than implicit. And there's been a lot of pushback because a lot of the studies um, were saying, fine, you say explicit is better because all the outcome measures that you're using are explicit biased. So there's it's explicit knowledge bias. So they're capturing things. So that's why I wanted to come from a different angle and use eye tracking because it's a very implicit measure. So I was like, okay, now let's take care of the approach, the teaching approach, and the way we're assessing those learning gains so we can get the full picture. Do you wanna, you wanna hear something funny? Yeah. I guess this is revealing the results from my study. So I had a control group and then I had a instructor group. Uh, uh -huh. Funny enough, uh, my outcome measures were very, how can I say this? They very much follow process and instruction. Mm -hmm. So my control group learned. Oh, really? So in a way, it's showing that it's more how you design the outcome measure if it's pushing them to really pay attention to that connection with the form that you're testing and the meaning it has Absolutely. and the actual explicit information. So I, th I thought it was great. I was like, great. That's Just by testing this, I'm finding something else. So I think it is very informative. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 completely, I completely agree. Um, the sorry, the instructor group did learn more, but the sure. control group did as well. That's so cool. I'm really, I'm probably going to go to your defense. I'm not even going to lie. I'm probably going to go <laughs> don't, I, love, don't. I, love a, I love a good defense. I love a good defense. Um, so, <laughs> but um, I actually kind of want to return to a point, I think, Bowden and Justin both touched upon it, and you said that your experience at UIC was different because they had an explicit heritage speakers program within the Spanish department. Can you see like right now, based on the interpretation of your results, can you see any pathways opening up, any resources opening up for instructors who are kind of stumped by the heritage learner in their class? Right. So I think I would say that one thing is what the heritage learner thinks he or she needs and what you actually know they need because there's always a disconnect. They want to know about accent Mars. They want to know all the explicit rules but that's not quite what they need sometimes. Mm -hmm. So um, just from my experience teaching heritage speakers, I would say you need to know your heritage speaker before you go in and do anything. Like you need mm -hmm. to assess out what, what they're at basically, what level, what particular weaknesses they might have, they might not have any. Just to give you an, an idea, the students I had at UIC were excellent. We're talking, mm -hmm. there were not many areas of that they needed they didn't even help with. So mm -hmm. that was very different from heritage speakers that I have had here. So I can, there's no one plan for everybody teaching heritage speakers. You have to be flexible and then you need to kind of like do a diagnostic sort of test at the beginning. And it doesn't have to be a test. It can be an interview. It can be a conversation to get a sense of what the heritage speaker needs if they need mm -hmm. anything and then go from there because there really isn't an answer for that. My, my, my dissertation what I was trying to do is just kind of like, test these things that we're doing, right? They are in a foreign language classroom. They are being expo uh, exposed to this maybe hybrid, maybe full-on explicit instructional method. Mm -hmm. Well, let's test to what extent this is good for them or not. And if mm -hmm. it's not, we have some evidence and then we can move forward with a different approach. That was mm -hmm. kind of where I was coming from. Let's just validate this or not, or reject it. Right. Excellent. Oh, it's so cool. I think that I think that really speaks to the broader point of like as a teacher, like know your students, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, don't expect. I mean, yeah, especially with especially with heritage with heritage with heritage learners, it's not a you know one size fits all. It's also mm -hmm. you know, and we should we and we shouldn't approach we shouldn't approach our teaching like that either, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
Right. And it's definitely, I mean, because it's not something I'm very personally acquainted with in my classroom, um, because the, you know, number, the population of French heritage speakers is very low. I think we had our first heritage learner in one of my colleague sections this past semester in one of How was that? Well, she's still going through it. Um, Good. Ash is, Ash is going through it. So Ash is, Ash is learning a lot. Um, right. Do you, do you happen to know? I'm super um, curious about the French yeah. profile. Like, I wouldn't know what, what that would look like. Probably spelling might be off. Um, I don't think it's anything like ortho. I don't think it's like orthography based. Oh, um, but I think it's mostly kind of it's kind of what you presented at the share fair um, with, and you demonstrated using Alicia in the classroom. It's kind of different lexicon because it's a Quebecois speaker. Um, different oh. lexicon, different pronunciation patterns, different inflections. Um, and I think it's really cool because Ash is a is she's such a wonderful instructor, and she's very experienced with different. Um, uh, different different varieties of French and so she's learning a lot and also she's been doing a great job I think um, from what I can tell like trying to address what the heritage speaker seems to need like you um, like we've been talking about um, but it's also very when I think Justin actually I think all of you said at one point that the instructor just doesn't know what to do like because yeah. we, especially in French we don't encounter this a lot I mean um, uh, so we just it's it's interesting, and I'm actually probably going to talk to her about this on Monday, now that I'm thinking about it. Um, but, like, it's a really interesting situation, and, um, I mean, like, like Bowden said with that example, it's just, yeah. know your gender, know your, right. um, it's like the little things that are, like, tripping her up, but now I think it's really good, and, and the student seems to be benefiting <gasps> from the class um, and the course setup. So. Right, and just to be, this is a very interesting comment everybody gets that like know your gender and stuff. There's a lot of research out there showing that heritage speakers are not great with gender sometimes. They're not, mm -hmm. they're not. And they don't care. They really don't care that you don't get their gender right because they really worry about the fact that you know formal Spanish and they don't. They, right. really, they feel insecure whether you are a white guy teaching them or they don't care. Mm -hmm. They're just like, oh, this person went to college. This person knows their grammar. They only care about these grammar rules. Right. So like, um, I know how really the teacher feels very threatened, but they not really <laughs> well it's also this whole entire like how heritage well you touched on this really cool topic that it's i don't know there's this distinction between heritage and native where <laughs> a lot of instructors kind of conceptualize the native speaker as the ultimate goal the, right. the ultimate attainment this is what you should strive to be you should be able to use the language in this way and that way and then but by the same token, the closest that you could probably have in as far as like innateness is the heritage learner, right? Because it's yeah. kind of like built into their identity in so many different ways that is maybe not possible for an L2 speaker, right? But at the yeah. same time, the heritage speaker is seen as this deformed version in a way right. and it's so disheartening to hear that yeah. <clears throat> you even still see like the most educated instructors of foreign languages right. spanish for example and they still they will purposefully like yeah. make learners feel bad about just, their just don't get it like two three years ago i can't remember i went to an hls come one of the the HLS conference, and uh, one of the plenary speakers was uh, Lourdes Ortega, and mm -hmm. she gave an excellent talk 
a plenary talk, and it was about that. It's like, no matter what you do with heritage speakers, you compare them to those who learners, they fall short. You compare them to native speakers, they fall short. Can we stop doing that? We're not yeah. framing the narrative well, they're just being heard, and we're not doing anything to move the field forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that's a misunderstanding. Yeah. yeah. And actually, oh, sorry, but like, actually, and it just reminded me, um, as there's a conference going on right now um that's mm -hmm. the heritage spanish and yes. actually our next guest will be coming right from that conference to talk with us so that will be, be a good Can be I ask? questions ready oh, yeah um it's um sal i always is it custody no Oh, Sal. Yeah, Sal's at Sal the conference the right now. Like so. organized HLS this year? Yeah, yeah, he is. Um, he, oh, great. Yeah, he's at UT Austin. And, um, speaker questions ready. Uh, yeah, we are. We're prepped <laughs> because Sal is here. Conference here um, yeah, so and like, you know, really how many excited. how many times have you heard that conversation amongst like in in like a language department of oh like it's almost like the the heritage speaker is treated as this like infiltrator right mm -hmm. because there's like well you yeah. know that they should have been they should have been taking you know three oh one but they're taking one oh one and you know that they shouldn't be in there and it's like these right. judgments get put on them it's like immediately like, whoa like let's just like you know right. let's just sit down and talk with this person and just you know find out if this is exactly. what they need you know like instead of you know treating them as like a you know they've committed some criminal act everybody thinks they're behind just an easy a <laughs> right and it might not be the case that's always the conversation that's always how the conversation is framed you know and like you said you need to change we need to change that um the whole narrative of how we approach heritage it, really, it makes me it begs the question like a racist approach is it like profiling in a sense is it like linguistic profiling in a way to say i mean i'm sorry this may not have like the perfect answer today but like to yeah. say oh well you know, you sound like you have a Spanish accent, or you sound like you may have heard Spanish a lot growing up, or you look like you may have heard uh, Spanish. Do you, do you want to hear my answer to that? Because I think it's very interesting. Do you, Robin, do you know that Alex, my husband, is a heritage speaker of English? Yes, yes. He it's, suffered the same in France. Mm -hmm. It was the same for him. White guy, France, he was always discriminated in the English classroom because he was way better than the teacher. Right, no. no. And so, worst grades, he was singled out a lot and like, picked on for a long time. So I don't right. think it's necessarily, this is happening, I think, internationally. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. It, That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, because he, um, yeah, he grew up in, he grew up in France, yeah. but both of his parents are Anglophone, so he speaks yeah. a beautiful, he's, his accent is beautiful. I love listening to him. Papa? Um, be like, because yeah. he, he has a British accent, so he'll say, like, yeah, we're walking to the lift. And I was like, where? Where are we going? <laughs> you know? yeah. so, right, right. And, and I, I keep telling him, I'm like, Alex, we've been here for seven years. Do you know it's an elevator? <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, you're mad at me. Like, he's one of those Brazilian heritage speakers who is like, no, that's not how you say it. You say I'm like, I'm in the U.S., I'm not going to say tomato. I so happy friends. I just... Get on but, with it, and he just doesn't, so. Yeah, but that makes me sad. Yeah, I know, um, because, like, I think, um, and I've seen dynamics like that um, it, within even teaching-wise, right? And I've and the different departments I've I've been in, I've seen instructors who are heritage, who are heritage French oh, speakers, yeah. and they are they are they are treated as like the native model, and every time they screw up, everyone is just like. Ah, but you're supposed to. Uh, you're yeah. supposed to be perfect. standards for sure. Like, and I, I initially had them myself when I started teaching, and I had like Luis Lopez in my class, and I was like, Luis Lopez, what are you doing here? Like, you should be in like advanced level classes. Right. right. And it didn't take me long to figure out that Luis Lopez didn't hear much Spanish growing up, 
Mm-hmm. And he had the right to be in that classroom. And then I was like, okay, I got to adjust my expectations for him because right. he's one of those kind of L2 learners in a way. So mm-hmm. yeah. It's, it's a, it's an ongoing debate. And unfortunately, I think research like yours and um, a lot of, especially in the field of, in terms of Spanish linguistics, I think are helping to resolve and to reorient a lot of people's expectations and learned um, prejudices, essentially. Uh, so hopefully that'll spread into the other foreign, because foreign language education in, in the United States, as we all know very well, is suffering. So we yeah. got we got to plug all the holes up and then we just got to restructure it. But anyway, that's for another episode, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Plugging the hole, plugging the holes in SLA. Yeah. Plugging the, the holes. In the, in the, that's there a, it is. Yeah, that's a good paper topic. Like you got yeah. a sinking ship metaphor. Like like, it's a very physical job we have, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> all right, guys. Well, y'all stay tuned. We are going to be right back in just a little bit. And we're going to hear about Sarah's graduate experience. Yeah. Oh, so <laughs> y'all stay tuned. We have heard all about Sarah's research, and I think it's amazing, and it brings us to our last section, which is, of course, my favorite section, which is called Lessons Learned. And so, Sarah, if you could, you've, I've, we got a lot about your bio, and like, in terms of, we know that you've studied, you're, you know, you, you're from Spain, you've studied there, you've studied in Germany, you've studied in the United States. Looking back on your trajectory, like what are some things that if you could go back in time and you could actually, you know, tell young Sarah when she was, as we say, bright eyed, I think Robin likes to say bright eyed and bushy tailed, starting out on this journey, what is something that you could, you wish you could go back and tell yourself that really would have benefited, that really would have made things a lot easier for you? I think everybody touches on this one. Um, try not to overdo it. I think I've always being very ambitious and I but it was it was good so it worked out for me I think in a way I was really curious to, to try everything so when I started my master's I remember that I started with a big cohort and people figure out really fast what they wanted to do mm-hmm. so like that semester the classes we took in linguistics they were all theoretical in nature uh, so people or sociolinguistics and they were like oh I'm a sociolinguist oh I'm a theoretical linguist and I was like uh, don't like it <laughs> so I was like really stressed out because everybody seemed to know really fast what they wanted to do, what their master thesis was going to be on. And it took me a little while to figure that out. Right. Mm -hmm. So that was stressful. And I think I overthought the whole thing. Like I was just like, it's okay. You explore different options. You take more classes and then you'll come to you. You better like wait and see what makes a difference for you and what you're invested on that take something that you don't know and just kind of like follow everybody else. Right. Mm-hmm. So it was my second semester. I was, we had a, an SLA seminar and it wasn't taught by the specialist in our department. It was taught by someone else because that person was busy doing something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I felt like the class was great, but it wasn't amazing. Mm-hmm. Like I said, it wasn't the person's feel per se, right? So I realized really fast that I enjoyed it very much, even though it wasn't like an amazing class. So I was like, this is it this must be it if it's not a like type A class and I'm enjoying it and everybody else is like, ugh. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's actually me in SLA classes usually. Right. I always can tell you. Um, You don't like SLA or you like SLA? I 
doesn't. Well, <laughs> I have liked SLA. I didn't really know much about it going into my master's. And then I had a really great introductory professor at UA. And then we didn't really have that much SLA-oriented coursework there. However, I came here to UIUC, and you very well know we have so many specialists. Um, in particular, I became interested enough in the field, at least in a particular part of the field, that I'm working on a project with one of the um, slate professors in my department. So that's really exciting. Um, mostly, it's kind of like a secondary interest, I guess, for me. It's not like my bread. It's not my bread and butter like it is for all. all it's you a folks. great interest to have. Especially uh -huh. given the job market situation, it really Absolutely. is. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's true. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, um, so I had a, um, I had a question about how your experiences kind of, you pursued um, your undergraduate in Spain and then you did one year of exchange in Germany, so you met Alex, and then you guys came over to the United States and then you began teaching. Um, so what was that like? Like when you taught at Michigan and then you were like, I want to go to grad school. <laughs> oh my God, that was such a mess for me. So I'm not the kind of person who will, I will regret things to be honest with you, but I have taken so many risks and I'm so happy that I did mm -hmm. because they brought me to where I am right now. So I'm just excited about that. So when I, I did my undergrad in English, right? So when I finished, so when I was in my last year in Germany, my university has an exchange program with the U.S. They have actually multiple ones. So, but the main destinations are Michigan, Indiana, and then uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't an A student, to be honest with you. And you know how it is in France and Spain. It's like people don't really care amazing things. It's just, <laughs> just past classes. You, you, I mean, I wasn't that kind of person. So anyway, so I, like I went to Germany and I learned a lot and I learned a lot, a lot about myself. So I was like, I could do this. Linguistics is my passion. Mm -hmm. So the opportunity of going to the U.S., I thought, yeah, I'm taking this. And I'm so glad my husband, my then boyfriend was like, yeah, I'm going to go with you. Why not? Let's move across the world, basically, across the, the Atlantic. Um, but it was an exchange program that made the Spanish people teach Spanish in the U.S. and the American people teach English in Spain, even though it wasn't our specialty. Mm -hmm. So that was really messy. Right. Yeah. Because I was not ready to teach Spanish. And there was sometimes these programs are like you're a TA and you take classes. This was a full time instructor physician, which I was really excited about the money. Right. I was really excited about the money. But then I was like, oh, my God. Uh, day one, I had to teach the subjunctive, which now I love. And I was like, what's that again? How <laughs> <laughs> do I use that? You know? Right. It was it was super hard. And I think uh, the training that they're teaching that you get normally, it wasn't great. For me, oh, I didn't get it. You know, like I was still, I was still dealing with the English was my first language. It was new to the U.S., mm -hmm. so everything was a little bit too much. Mm -hmm. But I liked it so much that I decided to pursue grad school in Spanish. I felt like there was a need for Spanish, and then I wasn't competitive enough in English, so I was like, it's time to switch. I'm fine with that. Mm -hmm. So I think that was a turning point in my career, and I would have not been successful in English, I think, because I'm not as motivated as I am right now with Spanish. So. It seems like a common thread just throughout your story is just flexibility yeah. and being willing to kind of discover who you are along the road. Like, for example, not knowing exactly what field and linguistics you wanted to study, but yeah. then you just allowed yourself to, to kind of develop that and define yourself in your own way on your own terms in kind of on your own timeline as well. Mm -hmm. and that's, that's something that I think 
graduate students can really benefit from hearing about because a lot of people are just, they get there and they think, oh, I'm a dialectologist. That's what I used to say all the time. I told, I told one professor, I was like, I'm a dialectologist. I turned to look at him like, you're a dialectologist. You never told me that. No, but I mean, like, I, you know, I was dead set on using my research as my way of going back to Costa Rica every single summer and doing right there. And then it was, I'm going to, no, it was either like dialectology or SLA. And then I just went head, I dove right head into first. S, head first. That was the first scene. I'm rubbing <laughs> off on Justin. It's fine. I feel, yeah. I feel <laughs> But, um, you know, and then even with the dissertation topic, I imagine like you, you toyed around with a bunch of different ideas, but uh, you yeah. didn't want to. Yeah, for me, it was super, it was so much fun, my dissertation topic, because I had worked with Joel Jagersky here, who does psycholinguistics, and then with Melissa Bowles, who does uh, instructor language acquisition. So by working on both fields, I felt like, oh, the, the field of instructor language acquisition is missing this use of eye tracking to actually fill in this. So I, I remember sitting with them and be like, hey, I have this idea that is crazy. <laughs> uh, you would have to collaborate and guide me through the whole process. And they were like, that's fine. We're happy to help you. We think this is an interesting project that would actually help the field move forward. And there's actually been a couple of studies that have done that recently. So it looks like I wasn't the only one thinking about that. Okay. Not the cool. only crazy one, and that's great, right? No, no, and I'm glad that it worked out, right? Sometimes it doesn't work out. Sometimes, yeah. I mean, we're all, I mean, we're, we're all crazy to a certain point, right? I mean, we have to be to be in grad school. I mean, sometimes I feel like, you know, like, I don't even, like, like what, what are we even doing? You know, like, <laughs> like you no, know, I look at stuff that I'm reading sometimes, and I'm just like, what even is yeah. <laughs> I like, right. but I love it. Like I do love it. Did you happen to think that when you were reading the Foucault? Was that what? It was? Always, girl. I I always think that when I'm reading Foucault. I'm just like, uh, here we here we go again. You know. But just to think about my dissertation, how do you sit through a meeting with these two people who are going to be your co-directors, and you tell them, hey, I want to do this study, which means. For an instructor language acquisition study, you need to test people, like a lot of people, right? You have the control group, you have an instructor group. I also had native speakers just to have a baseline for processing measures. Mm -hmm. And then this is a multi-session study. We're talking three sessions, a minimum of 40 people plus the 20 native speakers. Can you do the math for the hours that I need to spend in the lab for that? They're just like... I'm too scared. You want to do that? Like, you want to do that? And I was like, yeah, I really want to do that because I think I could set up, like, a really cool study and get tons of data and maybe just publish for the, <laughs> for the next five years. Definitely, right? get tons, definitely get tons of data. That's, that's for sure. But it was a time investment, and I was so glad that people were like, yeah, you have the lab space. You have the right mentors. You seem to have a passion for this. Go ahead and do it. So I got really lucky. Right. Yeah. And that's I will really say awesome. that, like, your what you described, I think, is uh, really – something I've noticed at UIUC throughout like, all the language departments and linguistics departments I've noticed is that they are great with you being cra like crazy, you know, yeah. like so for example, I had to, I was very nervous this semester going towards my, um, going to my advisor telling her like, I want to take this course load and I want to do my research at the same time and blah, blah, blah. And because I'm used to um, professors like shutting me down mostly because they're, primarily care they're worried about my well-being and like they're like this is too much blah, blah blah and she just looked at me and she's like of course why what's up you know and I just said okay this is great you know um and it's really nice to have not only like I think faculty and and just um uh 
mentors in general who are so supportive of your dreams, but are also like you, uh, like Dr. Uh, Dr. Bowles and the and the psycholinguistics professor, like be like open to collaboration. Like, sure, yeah. that's great. You know, because that's something I think I've heard from colleagues that at their schools, that's a problem. Like professors right. don't want to co-chair. They don't want right. to have to talk to their, you know, co-workers. Oh, they have different visions, right? Or like mm -hmm. different approaches. And then they're like, ugh. And I'm not going to lie to you. Sometimes you get contradictory feedback and you're like, ugh, what am I going right. to do? Mm -hmm. but I think it's helpful. It makes your work better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's yeah, that's I was going to say that's something like, you know, when you're forming these, uh, you know, you're forming your dissertation, you're forming your program of study committee and things like that. That's something that um, it serves you well to ask questions on, you know, basically you have to kind of know the personalities of the people and you really have to know kind of like the, the behind the scenes, like behind the curtains, like, does this person actually get it? Like, can this person stand being in the same room with this person? You know, because I mean that, I mean, Which is happens, important. Right? I mean, people, people in academia sometimes develop these, you know, really toxic relationships with each other. And then, you know, here, here marches the, the graduate student and we're really happy to do our research and we pick these people who are very toxic together and yeah. that can really have an impact sometimes on your ability to do the research that you want. Something <laughs> that I wanted to touch on, if you guys don't mind, is something that yes. I think People don't talk about, and I want to talk about it because I want to go out there and just say it. One of the things, <laughs> two things. I'm a first generation international college student. That was mm -hmm. rough, very rough, getting used to um, a different educational system and in a foreign country. That was really, right. really hard. The masters, I don't know what I was doing half the time. There were too many presentations that I was like, I can barely understand those articles you want me to present. And there was so much theory in the masters I did. And then we, we were forced to, to sometimes even kind of like co-teach the class with the teacher so that you could really get a good understanding and a grasp of what you were reading. Mm -hmm. That I guess now I'm like, whoa, I was really bad. I, like I'll go back and read a paper and I'm like, whoa, how did yeah. I get past <laughs> this class? Yeah. And also the mental health problem. So I kind of had a bad first year here just because I moved from Chicago to U of I by myself. Mm -hmm. So my husband had to stay to finish his master's. Mm -hmm. And it was a new campus. Uh, I was in a toxic situation in terms of like uh, roommates. The program was like way more intense than I had imagined. And I had to take three classes that require a research project, each class and methodology class for new TAs. Yikes. So I ended up with anxiety. Like uh, one day I was proctoring an exam and out of nowhere, I thought I was having a heart attack. To the point that they had to take me to the hospital. Like, I'm not, I'm not kidding. Wow. I ended up having anxiety for six months. So panic attacks on a daily basis. Mm. Wow. It took a long time to go away. I still push through, you know, like, because that's who I am. Like, I push through, I kept going to school. This is like a psychological thing. So, like, it will just wear out after a few months. That's what I was mm -hmm. told. So, I just, I'm just going to do my best. But, like, people don't talk about this enough, you know? Like, yeah. I... I got the support because it's a great institution and I just knew where to go and everything. But like mm -hmm. a lot of people that I've met are struggling with the same and nobody talks about it. Mm -hmm. Nobody does talk. Because you're supposed to suffer in silence, you know? Yes. Mm -hmm. And to be a good graduate student is to be quiet about, right. but you're oh, supposed wait. to complain about how much work, but you're supposed yes. to glorify the fact that you don't have a life. Right. You don't have mm -hmm. exactly. relationships with people or the fact that you didn't get any sleep. That's like, oh my goodness, you know, she's incredible. She didn't sleep last night and she hasn't slept in right. like weeks. But in actuality, that 
it's it's go back it goes back to this whole entire thing about perform performance and facades and we have to change this culture of yeah. it's okay to be because you know what it'll follow you into yeah. once you get your tenure track job once you get your instructor position you know it'll follow you right th- and if you haven't had anxiety trust me the the job market will give you enough anxiety oh yeah that, i mean I just recommend that if you are having issues as a graduate student, if this anxiety does show up, go and seek help because yeah. I yeah. I know people that struggle with anxiety every single day. Uh, you know, I struggle with anxiety as well. Just um, there were times when if I ever opened up my dissertation, I would have to go for a walk immediately just in, right. just to be able to handle the fact that I opened up my dissertation. That's why you'd always text me, let's go for a walk. <laughs> Isn't it great to have those kind of friends? I, I went for a walk this morning. Yeah. There you go. You know? Uh, that reminds me, I saw something, um, I'm very uh I'm very new to Twitter and so I've been I've been using it I've been using it a lot lately and I have uh I have thirty nine tweets currently. <laughs> nice few, few proud tweets. And, um, but anyway, I saw something the other day. There's a professor at uh, Emory University um, that tweeted out something that was, a lot of people were retweeting and it said, um, academics, please let's stop bragging about poor self-care. Yeah. It's not good. It's not good for us and toxic to those that we work with. Let's instead be proud of the things that we do to find joy, improve relationships and maintain a healthy perspective on life. And that just reminded me of what Justin said about this, this glorification, the glorification yes. of busy. Right, yeah. the glorification of I have I'm running on three hours of sleep and way too much caffeine. You know, we need to take a second and stop and stop doing that. And I feel like that also speaks back to something that you said when we first started this section about comparing yourself to others. Right, yeah. like you said that you were like everyone was finding their path and everyone was you know wearing their they got their badge that I'm a, uh, what was she like? I'm a dialectologist. dialectologist. Yeah. (laughs) Everybody had their, you know, got their titles, you know, and and you didn't have a title and you felt left out. Yeah. Something's wrong. I'm not doing, I'm not doing it right. You know, because, and, um, you know, it's just not, it's not a very healthy way. It's not a healthy way to look at it, but it's kind of for so many people. Well, that's the reality, right? We Don't you guys feel like sometimes do you have an orientation for new graduate students in, in Alabama too? So mm-hmm. I have pushed for the past, I mean, I'm, I'm tired now because it's been, since when you're at a HETA here, like a coordinator, you normally participate in the, in the orientation and you sometimes give talks and train the new TAs. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I push starting three years ago was to give a talk with another friend of mine called Sierra. She's now at Ohio State. Sarah Little, I love you if you're hearing this. And <laughs> She uh, and I had this talk we call Seta's uh, Secrets to Sanity. And we gave that talk and it was all about mental health and like little things that you should know about the campus life, right? And like people were a little bit scared by the same time. They were like, thank you. Like I'm informed now. I know what to expect. Because especially those international students are like so lost. I'm really happy you brought this up. Yeah. It's, it's such a big issue. And like, I don't know from like your perspective or the boys' perspectives, have you seen a shift since like within the past five years in, in higher education, the, the dialogue on, you know, mental health, men, uh, you know, self-care, has it changed? Has it progressed? Do we need to, of course we have to keep, you know, working at it, but do you think like collectively as a culture, we have gotten better about it? 
I think I've seen more articles on Facebook and online. I can talk from my department's perspective. I know they have made an emphasis. Look, I, I missed it because I was on campus visit, but um, they had this um, wonderful workshop on how to help students who might have mental health issues or mm -hmm. might be stressed out. And it was like a, like a workshop for TAs to help the, their undergrad students, but also informative to them. Mm -hmm. so I think there's an effort to make sure that that's understood through, like for everybody. We know that it's very difficult to change academia, and so like it has to like it has to start with us. So we should be asking ourselves questions of when we get to these positions, like how are we going to engage with our graduate students, right? Like when you know, are we going to be the the professor that shames their graduate student? No, like we're we're not going to be that way, right? We're no. going to see the humanity in our position, see the in our students, and we're going to make everything better, right? Yes, yes, we are. So we, on, we, we have ended, yeah. on a positive, ended on a positive note. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so much, Sarah. Thank you so much. It was this an was amazing awesome. conversation. I loved it. So I loved it. All right, Bowden, take us out. Guys, that about wraps everything up for uh, for the Gravelings. Thank you, Sarah, for agreeing to be our guest. Thank um, you. On our, in our third season. Thank you. The discussion was awesome. Um, before we go, if you like what we do, please follow us on Facebook at the Gradlings Podcast, Instagram at Gradling Podcast, and Twitter at Gradlings Podcast. And of course, feel free to comment and message about being on the show. If you have some research that you're doing and you're interested in what we do, please send us an email and talk to us because we're currently filling out our um, we're currently filling out episodes for our fourth season. Also, thank you to Dr. Doug Lightfoot, who's the chair of the Modern Languages Department at the University of Alabama, and Dr. Aaron O'Rourke, who is our faculty advisor, and to CBDD for our awesome new music award season three. That's all from the Gradlings. Thank you so much, Sarah. We really appreciate it, and we'll see you guys next time. Thank you.